Well, good morning. Welcome to Burke Community Church. If you're new to the church here in the sanctuary today or online, my name is Michael Coffey. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And if you are visiting and this is your first time, welcome. But also, I'd like to invite you to return next week. The senior pastor, Dr. Marty Baker, will be back from a trip that he's on, and if you've not heard him teach the scriptures, you're in for a treat, so I invite you to return if it's your first time. Throughout the scriptures, both Old Testament and New, there are only seven people who are called by their name twice when the Lord speaks to them. Three of those people are found in the New Testament, and that would be a great Bible trivia quiz for you to work on in your uh, spare time. We're going to look at one of those uh, incidences today in Luke 22. Jesus is having his last supper with his disciples. It's only a few hours until his arrest, his false trial, and then his murder. The disciples have been told there at that last supper that one of them is going to betray him. After the initial shock, they immediately began to say, well, it's not me. You'd love to be a fly on the wall because the way the conversation seems to go that after the initial protestation that it's not me, you kind of get the feeling that they're kind of doing this possibly with one another there. But then they start doing this sort of conversation that, well, since it's not me, then that means that I'm going to be something great in the kingdom. And Christ, who's been modeling for them servant leadership, explains to them again that, no, 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 you don't understand. Leadership in my kingdom is a very different standard. It is, in fact, servant leadership. It is, in fact, what I just did for y'all a little bit ago whenever I girded myself with a towel and washed your feet because nobody else wanted to do that. But he does promise them that each of you is, in fact, going to serve and rule in my future earthly kingdom here. In fact, you're going to judge and lead the 12 tribes of Israel. And then he turns and he looks with a laser-like focus at Peter at the table and calls him by name twice to denote emphasis, to convey importance about what he's about to say. And he says... Chapter 22, verse 31, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and you, when you have once again turned, strengthen your brothers. Having just been promised that he's going to be a ruler with Christ in Christ's earthly kingdom, just a few hours later, Peter is going to be so scared by a servant girl that he's going to deny three times, it says, with oaths and cursing, that he doesn't even know who Christ is. It's a monumental crash from joyful anticipation about going to serve with him when he comes to reign on the earth to suddenly being alone in the dark, a failure, and weeping bitter tears. It all happens in just a few hours. Now, here's the bottom line or the bluff for all the military folks out there about what my sermon is about, because some of you like to know what the bottom line is up front. Jesus prays for his own to keep Satan from destroying our faith. There it is. Jesus prays for his own so that Satan will not be able to destroy our faith. Look again at verse 31. 
Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Now, the first thing I need to tell you is that it says it a little differently in the original language there in the Greek. Marty is such a wonderful teacher here, always showing you the nuggets of insight that can be gained there. But I want to give you encouragement that if you want to know what it's saying in the Greek, get yourself about two or three different versions of the Bible. And the people that have done the translations have worked really hard so that you can read with confidence the scripture. In this case, I've got the New American Standard up here, and it talks about Simon, Simon, he's demanded to sift you. The New International Version has a little more close to the Greek where it says you all. If I was really uh, letting you have the Greek sense here, I would get the redneck version of the scriptures and read to you that Simon, Simon, Satan's already demanded permission to sift all y'all. That's what it's saying (laughs) here in the thing. He wants to sift all you disciples. And Jesus then turns and says, but you, Simon, I've prayed for you singular." that your faith, singular, may not fail. And you, once you turn, then strengthen your brothers. Now, to whom would Satan make such a request? Your scriptures may say that he demanded, as Jesus is talking about it, but it's more like a petulant child stomping its feet and whining and crying that I've got to have this, I need this, that he's making this demand that you've got to give me the disciples because Satan can't demand anything of God. Satan is a creation. Satan is a creature that was created by God. God is almighty, so he has to request this, but who would he make such a request of? Probably God the Father. We have an example of that in the book of Job. Satan is pictured as making the same sort of demanding request of God. Look at chapter 1. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands, his possessions, increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all he has. He will surely curse you to your face. And then the Lord says to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. He departed and he killed every single one of Job's children. He completely wiped out Job's financial livelihood. But when Job's faith doesn't fail at the loss of his family and possessions, Satan returns again with another demanding request. Verse 4, chapter 2, Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. Yes, all that a man has, he will give for his life. However, put put forth your hand now and touch his bone and his flesh. He'll curse you to your face. So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he's in your power. Only spare his life. So both in the words of the book of Job and the words of Christ there at the Last Supper, Satan has to go to God for permission before he can trouble you and your life, before he can trouble a child of God, before he can trouble God's people. He has to exact permission from your heavenly father. Now, the thing I love about this church is it's always full of thinking people because that raises a couple of implications for me and I'm sure for you that are important to our lives and the way we live our faith. One is that Satan does have a lot of power in this world. 
Jesus calls him the prince or the ruler of this world. Paul calls him the God of this age, calls him the ruler of the authority of the air. He can blind unbelievers. He can blind their minds. He can hold them in a snare until God in his mercy lets them be exposed to the gospel of Christ that can finally release them from the blindness that Satan has put them under. He can take life. He did that with Job's children. He can ruin health. He did that with Job. Also, if you look in other parts of the scripture, Luke 13, it talks about a woman that was bent over. She couldn't even stand up, and it said it was because of demonic influence in her life that physically she was held captive in a, a way she couldn't even raise up. He can torment with demons. You see that in the example of the demoniac that Christ healed. He can provoke evil deeds. Just earlier in this same chapter that we're looking at today, Luke 22, it said that Satan entered into Judas, and then he went out into the night and betrayed the Lord, and he can cause natural disasters. The fact that Satan has such power in the world doesn't have to scare you, but it should warn you that we are to remain earnest in our prayers and ever conscious of our need to depend on the Lord moment by moment, never relying on our own strength as we try to live our lives before the Lord in this world. There's another implication of Jesus' word. Satan is real. His power is great. needs to be regarded with seriousness. Second implication, though, is that Satan's activity is only with the permission of God. There aren't two ultimate powers in this universe. The key word there being ultimate. As I said, Satan is a creation. He is a creature. He was an angel that led the angels in rebellion. And now he is the leader of a host of demons. But he is a creature. When Satan wants to have the disciples, he has to go to God first and request that. So when I hear words, and when you hear words like Satan has demanded to have you, recognize it. He may be making a request of God, but he cannot hurt you any more than God is going to permit pain to come into your life. But for me, and I'm sure for many of you, that raises some very tough theological questions. It's never good, I know as an old soldier, to try to be an armchair general uh, when somebody else is leading a battle especially in my finite state that sees blindly through a glass right now. But I can't help but think, why, God, would you grant anything to your arch enemy? Why would you ever give in to any of his demands? He's sworn against you. He has led a rebellion against you. He will always be in a rebellion against you. Why would you give him anything? That just keeps cascading to even larger and larger questions. Why does God tolerate the activity of Satan or evil at all in his universe? God has the power to put Satan out of commission. Last book of the scriptures, chapter 20 of Revelation, it says that at one point when Christ comes back to the earth to reign, to set up a reign of a thousand years here on earth, he binds Satan, puts him in a pit, it says so that he can no longer deceive the nations. And then he reigns for a thousand years as the best ruler this world has ever seen and ever will see. During that time, non-Christians are born. Finally, at the end of the thousand years, he releases Satan from that. And the first thing the non-Christians do is have a rebellion against the king of kings who's been ruling on earth. 
as he starts his activity again. The book ends with Satan being tossed into the lake of fire and destroyed forever and ever and taken out of commission. God has the ability to take Satan out of commission, so why doesn't he do it now? Why go on? Excuse me, why go on century after century permitting him to wreak havoc in the world? Well, the simplest, since I only have about 20 minutes, the simplest and uh, best answer might be that it's above my pay grade and yours. <laughs> he doesn't fully give us a clear answer that we would like to such a hard question. But it does have I guess, answers, if you'll look carefully at the scriptures. Scripture suggests that one reason why he allows Satan to persist in this sifting work in the lives of the believer is to bring good to you and to the church, which is you collectively, but ultimately to bring glory to himself as the Lord God Almighty. It's very clear all throughout the New Testament that God intends to bring Christians and therefore the church to maturity to perfect them through affliction and through temptation. Romans tells us that if we suffer with him, we will certainly be glorified with him. Peter writes that this present affliction you're going through is nothing compared to the glory that you're going to receive. Jesus plainly taught that if we wanted to be his disciples, then we were to pick up our cross and follow him and his example. <coughs> Excuse me. Picking up a cross is never going to have anything to do but suffering once you do it. He said that he's going to send us out as sheep among ravenous wolves. You don't have to watch too many National Geographic's specials to figure out sheep out among ravenous wolves not going to be a good day for the sheep but that's what he says he's doing through suffering and trials our faith is refined we are taught to rely more and more upon God not our own strength not our own power not our own wisdom cling to him moment by moment Lord live through me act through me and I grow to cherish the grace more that he shows me moment by moment, day by day. So Satan, as a creature of God, is allowed to bring pain and suffering, sometimes great suffering, sorrow, death, other things, into the lives of believers. But all he's doing is fanning the refining fire that the Lord put you in in the first place. He's the one that placed you inside the kiln. Satan is just a tool of his to fan the flame so the dross is burned away. Now that could be a little sad for some folks. That could be a real struggle. So I want to remind you again of what the scriptures so clearly teach all the way through them. The scriptures teach that God is love. His essence is love. He first loved us. It isn't the other way around. We didn't first love him. He first loved us. He left the glories of heaven. He came to earth to seek and to save that which was lost, which was all of us. He went looking for each and every one of us as a lost sheep. He went looking and reconciled us to him when we were enemies of his. So for an older man like me who's walked with the Lord for a number of years by his grace, it makes it a little easier for me to accept suffering in my life, even if Satan is causing it. Because I trust in the love and the mercy and the wisdom and the goodness of God. He first loved me. 
Satan has power, but it's all by permission. It's never out of control. It's like the love of God is a governor on the engine of what Satan can do. He sets up the left and the right boundaries of where he can operate. But I and you need to be sober in our prayers. We need to fight the good fight. We need to anticipate the victory of God at his perfect time in his perfect way. We need to rely upon him moment by moment. And God be praised. Only he is wise enough and powerful enough that he can even use an arch enemy for our good and for his glory. But go back to the passage. In verse 31, now Jesus goes on and he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. And as I told you, he's talking about, he's asked to have all of you. Jesus is telling Simon what Satan plans to do to him and to all the disciples. But what does that mean? Satan wants to sift you like wheat. What is that referred to in real life? I think the best clue comes as Jesus continues to talk there when he says, but I've prayed for you that your faith will not fail. That's the end goal. That's what the purpose of the sifting is. He aims to sift Simon and the others like wheat so that he can separate them from their faith. He means to make their faith fail. That's the purpose of sifting wheat, to break it apart from the stalks, from the husk, from everything else, to do a separation. I have a video of the other uh, part of the world, uh, this threshing and sifting action. If we can throw that, show that for a second. Just imagine you in your life when Satan has you and he's sifting you as you see what goes on here. So there you are, pounding. Can't get away. And it just keeps coming, just keeps coming, relentlessly pounding, breaking apart. And then suddenly the disorientation after all that is over, that you're just scooped up. You can't seem to find your bearings. You're tossed here and there. It's up and down. You don't know which end is up. You don't know which is down. How in the world are you supposed to know what to do? Everything seems to be inverted all around you. That's the sifting of Satan in the life of the believer. You may think of sifting as watching your grandmother do the flour before you got your favorite cookies. That is the sifting of Satan that you just saw there in that clip. His goal remains the same today as it did then. Now, it's interesting to me that to Satan, he doesn't care about you or me. He doesn't care. He has no pity. He has no mercy. He's filled with hate. So he doesn't care if you're healthy. He doesn't care if you're sick. He doesn't care if you're rich. He doesn't care if you're poor. He doesn't care if you have a relationship. He doesn't care if you're all alone. He doesn't care if you have a good career. He doesn't care if you are poverty and can't seem to get a job. He doesn't care if you're married or if you've been widowed much too soon. He doesn't care. He'll use it all. It doesn't matter to him. It's all just fodder that he'll use to try to separate you from your faith. In 40 years of ministry, I cannot tell you, I cannot tell you how many people I've seen who have denied Christ and walked away from their faith because their children made a lifestyle decision that after they thought they'd raised them in the faith that they have such pain about. Or a spouse or a girlfriend or a fiance or whatever breaks off a relationship and they're convinced that they can never love 
that way again. Or a spouse dies much too soon and they're looking at so many years of being alone or a career they absolutely love seems to be taken away from them, or they're financially wiped out too late in life to feel like they could ever get back even to square one again. I've seen it. And as I counsel and I talk to people, I sometimes think, really, is that it? Is that all it's going to take for you to deny the Savior of your soul and walk away from faith? Peter learned an eternal lesson that night. Thirty years later, he wrote in 1 Peter 5, Be a sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. But resist him. How? Firm in your faith. There it is again. Don't be separated from your faith. Be firm in your faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Jesus pictures Satan as sifting believers. Peter writes, having experienced that sifting, that Satan is a lion prowling around. The only thing that can save him from being devoured is the Christian's faith. The way to victory is repeatedly taught in the scriptures over and over again. Hold on to your faith. Do not let it go. As a military chaplain, I purposed in my heart years ago, I didn't know what I would have to face over 30 years going into a combat zone or whatever. You go as a non-combatant. My job is to be with the troops. My job, if it really starts to hit the fan, is to try to drag those wounded to safety. But along the way, to constantly remind people, hold on to your faith. Don't let it go. Ephesians says that when we get dressed in the armor of God, we have a shield. What's that shield of? The shield of faith, which can extinguish the fiery darts of Satan. That's why John writes to the church in Smyrna in Revelation 2, and he says, Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to cast some of you into prison so that you will be tested, and you'll have tribulation for ten days. And then it's going to get worse. You'll figure that out uh, here as it goes on. But look what he tells them to do. How do you get through this? Be faithful. Don't let it go. Hold on to your faith. Because some of you evidently are going to die. Be faithful unto death, and I'll give you the crown of life. Now, that's a great encouragement to me to know that God, who is always stronger than Satan, says that if I cling to my faith, as he prays for me, as he prays for you, we can endure Satan's attacks because we continue to remain faithful. We have the hope that he and he alone gives to us of eternal life. And I can hear him say, I pray, well done, good and faithful servant, when I finally see him face to face. But look at the rest of the text. There's more. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift all of you like wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you, Simon, have once again turned, strengthen your brothers. Jesus is confident that the Father is going to answer his prayer for Peter because he says, you're going to fail, but when you've turned, then strengthen your brothers. He knows Peter's going to deny him three times. He tells him that plainly in verse 34 that he will. 
But Jesus doesn't seem to consider this brief denial to be the utter failure and separation of his faith that Satan was choosing for it to be. It's a temporary weakness. It's a brief cowardice. It's followed immediately by bitter sorrow and hot tears. Jesus knew Peter would turn from his sin because he'd prayed for him and that his faith wasn't going to fail him completely. The Father has allowed Satan to sift him. Jesus has prayed for him. The Father's going to honor that prayer and bring Peter back. And that should be a hope and encouragement to you as it is for me that as he prays for me, that I also, even though I stumble, even though I betray him, even though I deny him, even though I give in to cowardice, but God be praised. He prays for me. He prays for you that our faith may not fail. You want to see where he prays for you? Look at John 17, his high priestly prayer. There you are, right there in the pages of Scripture, as he's praying for you even then. So does this mean that a Christian can't lose their faith, that they can't deny the Savior of their soul? No, it doesn't. Unfortunately, a Christian can choose to deny the faith. They can choose to walk away from following the Savior. I believe the scriptures say that the Christian is still guaranteed eternal life, not because they gutted it out and they kept on, they got across the finish line somehow or another. They, their only hope of eternal life was always the faithfulness of Christ and his words to them, his promise to them. But it does warn us that anyone can lose faith, anyone can walk away. All the disciples did. Paul writes of a co-laborer named Demas, whom he said at one time had been one of Paul's fellow workers in the gospel ministry, along with Mark, along with Luke and others, he mentions Philemon 1. During Paul's first imprisonment in Rome, Demas was there in Rome with him. It says, according to Colossians 4, there's biblical evidence that when Paul was in prison a second time, at least for a while, Demas was there with him, and then something seemed to happen. Demas forsook Paul abandoned the ministry and left town. Paul writes in 2 Timothy 4, Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone on to Thessalonica. In the original language there, it's literally, he's left me in a lurch. Paul's an old man now. He's in prison second time. He's soon to die in the cause of Christ. Whether Demas got scared because of the way it was shaping up for Paul or what, don't know. But he left him in the lurch. He abandoned Paul while he was in prison under a death sentence at the time that he needed him most. The entire book of Hebrews in the New Testament, the author is pleading with the Christians, possibly facing persecution in Jerusalem or wherever they're facing terrible persecution. Don't abandon your faith. Don't walk away from Christ. He tells them not to give in to the fear and suffering that they are going through right then. He tells them, don't be like your forefathers who got right to the edge of the promised land and then in fear of thinking people are too powerful, turned away and lost all the blessings that were there before them. Consider the Lord Jesus Christ who has suffered more than any of you and hang on to your faith. Can a Christian walk away from following Christ? Yes, unfortunately. He can be sifted, he can be in pain, he can be confused, he can be mad, he can be whatever, he can choose to turn away, but a Christian salvation can never be lost because of the faithfulness of Christ. Even if I'm faithless, he is faith, 
full, and he will follow through. If they cling to their faith, however, if they stay in the word, if they fellowship with other believers, then the precious words of the Savior found in John 10 ring even more true in our lives. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, and I and the Father are one. We may deny Christ, he will never deny us. But realize what is involved in the Christian life. There is no standing still in the Christian walk. I'm either advancing or I instantly begin to lose ground. So do you. There is no static or neutral position as a disciple of Christ. But what about the other ten disciples? Satan was going to sift them too, remember? Did Jesus pray for them? Yes, of course. Not so much in this passage here in Luke 22, but as I already referred to, John 17, you can see him praying for him. You can see him praying for you. It's interesting to me that God didn't, Jesus didn't ask God the Father to guard their faith in the same way that he did Peter here. That night, he broke the back of Peter's self-reliance, his bravado, his pride. But he didn't let him go. He turned him around, he forgave him, he restored him, he strengthened him. Even before Peter was sifted and failed, Jesus prayed for him and then gave him his new mission. I'm going to turn you around, I'm going to bring you back, and then I want you to strengthen your brothers. So the one who is strengthened becomes the strengthener of others. And that's a great lesson for all of us. Sometimes God will deal with you directly and your faith alone in a dark and a lonely place of suffering. But very often what he does is he brings to you a Simon Peter who has also suffered, who has been restored, who has been broken, who has learned the valuable lesson of hanging on to your faith just when you need it. People make fun of the title of the book about it takes a village, but there is an element of truth that eternal security is a community project of the church. We are here for one another, to encourage one another and help one another. So I hope that when God encourages your heart, that even if you failed, but you're still his child, even though you denied him, but he's turned you around, that you will be used by him to help a brother or a sister that you see suffering. Let's end with this. Jesus is aware of every single temptation that you're going to face. Everyone says it very plainly in 1 Corinthians 10. And he also gives you the power to resist that. Temptation isn't sin. But when I fall into sin, when I fail, even though he was ready to deliver me, he wasn't surprised that I failed. He's prayed for me. And then he's turning me around. And now he wants to use me in the life of others. I pray the same for you. We pray for each other. We encourage one another. Thanks be to God. That he's wise enough that he not only prays for us, he knows that we're but flesh and he uses us in each other's lives and as his witnesses in the world. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your grace to us. How lost we would be without you and your prayers, much less your perfect sacrifice for each and every one of us. 
Even though we will be sifted by Satan, you control the boundaries. You control it all. Help us to have faith in you. Help us to cling to our faith. Help us to walk with you moment by moment. Help us to be followers of Christ. We pray in your name. Amen. There'll be some prayer counselors up here afterwards if you'd like to come and talk with them about some things that are going on in your life, and they'll pray for you. But other than that, it's the end of our service today. Thank you for coming. Have a wonderful Sunday.